0: I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA's School of Law, and we are broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I am very pleased to be joined by Michael Roberts. Michael is the Executive Director of the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA UCLA Law, and therefore, of course, my colleague and friend. He is with us today to talk about the topic of food fraud, in other words, food that isn't what you think it is. Michael is an accomplished scholar and teacher who also worked for many years in private practice, including on issues of food fraud, and he's lectured extensively on this topic, and I'm thrilled to have him joining me today on the air. Welcome to the show, Michael.
1: Thank you, Kim. I'm delighted to be with you.
2: And we're both uh, actually in sunny Los Angeles calling in to broadcast live from Bushwick, Brooklyn which is very nice. It's nice to to finally have you uh, on the program. Um, And so as we launch into discussion, I guess I wanted to start off with, at the most basic level, what is food fraud?
1: Well, food food fraud uh, essentially is, we use another term to define food fraud that is very common amongst regulators, which is economically motivated adulteration. And what that means is when food is padded, or substituted, or added to, um, so you buy something that's very different than what you think it is. Uh, There's other types of fraud, uh, which could include um, sabotage or counterfeiting, which means using an unauthorized representation of a registered trademark, for example. But the food fraud that we most commonly are concerned that we are, that we are most concerned about and that's most common uh, is what is referred to more specifically as economically motivated adulteration. But I f- prefer to just say food fraud because that's what it is.
2: So when people, when you say that, what you know, what's an example of um, something that people might have encountered in their own lives that is an example of that economic adulteration?
1: Sure, uh, one product that's Particularly susceptible to fraud, for example, is is honey. Uh, most of the honey that consumers would buy in the grocery shelf um, does not contain pollen, uh, and honey has been targeted for many many years as a as a product that uh, is traded into the U.S., imported into the U.S. Um, that's very different than the honey you would buy from your local sourced uh, farm or or. Or a beekeeper who raises honey or produces honey for consumers. Um, Other products, uh, other examples could be uh, juices or beverages uh, that are are very different than what they purport to be on the label or the outside package of the product.
2: So I know that uh, you've talked about in the past that one of the really prominent instances of food fraud was the food safety crisis in China where melamine was found in dairy products. And ultimately led to some deaths and uh, serious prosecution and regulatory um, reforms in China. What was it that happened there, and how is it an example of food fraud?
1: Yeah, what happened, and I should also indicate that food fraud has been around for a long, long time, all the way back even before the beginnings of the United States uh, into the medieval age to um, the Roman and Greek empires, um, and so it's been around for a long, long time. But with this modern food system, it's, it takes on a particularly different nature uh, because it's more complicated, and we have food product and food ingredients that are coming in from all over the, around the world. But back in 2007, uh, the, it, we had a pr- an instance where uh, it was discovered that pet food coming from China contained melamine, Melamine is a substance that's used in hard plastic containers and and whatnot, and it really adds weight and substance to a product, and so the the addition of melamine to pet food added what what was thought of to be protein, and so it was a way to cut your cost or add product that would give give you a better, um, you know, a better result financially on the market, and so it was discovered that melamine was in pet food and it was killing pets around the, around the world. An investigation ensued. And shortly thereafter, it was also discovered that melamine was then being put into infant formula. And the, the and main it was, audience for Literally infant,
2: like plastic, like tiny pieces of... Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was added as a protein, as a way to, to, to give more uh, content or more weight or more protein... Uh, for the product, so you end up selling more product than you would otherwise. Um, and in this, it, with pet food, it was killing pets around the world, uh, including the US and Canada and, other, and elsewhere. But with the melamine for infant formula, that was really um, targeted to Chinese consumers. But it led to seven, or or rather, six infant deaths in China and over, nearly 50,000 hospitalizations, according to most reports. And that really raised the ire of the Chinese consumers. And to this day, many people in China uh, who buy infant formula look towards Hong Kong or other markets where they pay substantially more for infant formula that they trust. But all of this... um, awakened the regulatory system here in the U.S. as to the dangers of fraud. Uh, Oftentimes fraud is committed, but it does not necessarily lead to a food safety concern. But in this case, it did. And as a result, there was a hearing that was held in Washington, D.C. by the FDA, and it really put food fraud on the map, so to speak, as a problem in the food system.
2: And how does it it happen? I mean, how does it happen in our food system that we can end up with a product that is so different from what it purports to be. Is there no testing regimen for products that are packaged products that are sold?
1: No, there is not. the The food system is really predicated upon the idea of preventive controls, uh, and there is very, very little testing and very little inspection that actually goes on. Now there is more inspection, uh, thanks to the New Food Safety Modernization Act that was passed in 2011. But, that act, but the inspections are still very limited. Uh, still less than 2% of all food that's imported into the U.S. is inspected. Uh, inspections take a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of resources. Um, and, and, and very little to no testing actually goes on as well. So what we have is a system that's, again, based on preventive controls. So you have controls, for example, that are supposed to make sure that uh, that, that there's Things are not added to food or taken away from food that would create a safety problem or a quality problem. But what happens is because this food system is so complicated and so far-reaching that it's very difficult historically, and even today, for a number of food companies to really know where their ingredients are coming from. Or if they have some suspicion, they sometimes don't want to know and they don't investigate as thoroughly as they should. And so it's it's just a, it, it's more reflective of a far-reaching global food system, and quite frankly, of uh, cheaters and those who are less than honest who are engaged in in that system uh, in various pockets around the world, principally in, in parts of Asia, Eastern Europe, and in the U.S. as well.
2: You said with um, with the inspection process, there isn't typically testing. So does that mean this is like a eyeballing of products that happens?
1: Well, it's an eyeballing, but it's also a matter of keeping records. And so, you know, if you, for example, if there is a quality problem, um, you can then more easily trace it to the source. Um, But what happens is, yeah, it's an eyeballing test. and, and, And after a while, a certain product will get a reputation in the marketplace. Now, there is testing that's going on. But it's not necessarily by the FDA, although the FDA can and does test on occasion uh, when they are alerted to a problem. But for example, uh, a nonprofit organization called U.S. Pharmacopoeia, out of a very well respected organization that's been involved in dietary supplements for a number of years, has now been looking at conventional food products. Uh, and they've, been, they've created a database and they've identified products that are frequently the subject of fraud the top of their list, for example, would be seafood, uh, followed by honey and olive oil and, and juices and, and, and um, maple syrup and other types of products that are uh, frequently um, subject to fraud. And then uh, and, and then that way, anyone can consult this database. It's on the web, and you can look it up and follow a particular product if you wish.
2: And can you give a sense of the scale of the issue with something like seafood, um, you know how how common is it that there may be seafood that isn't what it is marketed as?
1: Yeah, it's pretty common, and I should—I didn't really fully answer your question about testing. I should—I should add that the U.S. Pharmacopeia is also developing testing mechanisms that companies can use and protocols. And the testing can be very complicated and very expensive because the cheating is also complicated and very sophisticated. Um, but in in terms of of being able to um, get a scale of fraud, for particular for seafood, for example, um, the um, U.S. Pharmacopeia, and I believe on the website even for uh, the uh, uh, CSPI, which is another well-known um, consumer center for
2: science and the public interest, right?
1: Yeah. They also have identified on their website um, the the. Specific types of seafood that are most susceptible to fraud, um, and and those that are you can trust more. And you know, for example, when you order sushi, which I know you enjoy and I enjoy and lots of other folks enjoy, uh, sushi is 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 uh, really rife with fraud. And so it's important um, as a consumer if you're going to eat sushi, for example, you know, enter into a dialogue with the um, Chef to find out where this where the fish is coming from and it's really hard for us to tell but um, I was recently eating at a uh, restaurant uh, in Berkeley and the chef came out and was able to identify specifically where each item of fish came from and it gave me a great deal of confidence um, and I but I suspect that most restaurants uh, are not equipped to do just that. <laughs>
2: so, and maybe most customers are not equipped to ask the right kind of questions, but right. I want to take a short break, and when we come back, talk some more about some of these common products that this issue comes up in, and then what some of the possibilities are for policy to address that. So we'll be back in a, a minute. <laughs>
0: Hey, what's up? This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network.
2: And we're back on Eating Matters. I'm Kim Kessler. I'm here with Michael Roberts, uh, both of us, of the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA Law School. And today we're talking about food fraud. And, Michael, before the break, you mentioned olive oil as one of the products that has um, partially helped to popularize this problem of food fraud. I think it's an area where more people have heard about issues of uh, fraud within in, in olive oil products, can you explain what the type of fraud is and how pervasive it is
1: sure and, and i didn 't fully answer your question on <coughs> seafood either. I should mention just to be more specific, uh, red snapper and tuna are uh, two of the items that are mostly or uh, white tuna are mostly mis- mislabeled in other words they're, they're you think that you're eating Red Snapper when it turns out to be something else. <laughs> and
2: mm-hmm. so those
1: are two two uh, particular products that are um, lab- lab- mislabeled more than others. As well. um, but, uh, yeah, olive oil, and the problem with olive oil is, again, it's a, it's a labeling problem where olive oil oftentimes is labeled as pure um, extra virgin olive oil. And that is not the case for a lot of olive oil, unfortunately. Uh, and much of this olive oil, It's it, one of the problems is that the labeling rules for olive oil are not very clear. They're very obscure. And so what you end up was, with is a grocery shelf where you've got a number of olive oils that say extra virgin olive oil on it in what you're really getting uh, is primarily what we call pomace or olive oil, oil that is not um, pressed in a way that puts that olive oil in the level of quality that one would expect for extra virgin olive oil. Um, Oftentimes this olive oil passes through many, many hands. In fact, if you look at the back of the label of many of these products, you'll see um, a country of origin statement, and it's not uncommon to see this olive oil... um, uh, being uh, identified with anywhere from six to ten different countries, mostly in Europe, um, and so it's um, it 's a real problem, and uh, you can and if you if you understand olive oil and appreciate what what good authentic quality olive oil tastes like, you can pick it out, but otherwise it 's really hard for a consumer to discern
2: yeah my husband and I have had a lot of talks about this since we first learned about um, the issues of fraud within olive oil. We like many listeners, I'm sure, love olive oil, cook and eat with it a lot and uh, I was actually recently away and came back and my husband had bought a new bottle of olive oil and hadn't had time to do his Google research on what was a reliable brand, and so had you know one of the typical culprits um of unlikely to be extra virgin olive oil and he said well, it tastes good, and I like it. <laughs> and he was, he was basically, you know, defending his choice. And so I, I think it actually does raise the question, what is the issue if the product isn't, in the case of these olive oil products, necessarily unsafe, and it tastes good to you, and it functions in more or less the same way? You know, what is it that we should be so worried about uh, in, in this kind of food fraud?
1: Well, it's a good question. And I think, you know, for people who... who or who don't care whether they're getting truly the best olive oil or not you know it may not be an issue but there are those who uh, like to think that if they're buying something that's labeled as the best type of that product such as olive oil that they truly are getting a high quality olive oil uh, and, and, and oftentimes they'll pay a premium for that product and so you know they care for a couple of different reasons um, but you're you are correct it It does not raise a safety issue, and oftentimes, quite frankly, if you use the cheap olive oil for cooking purposes, then it really doesn't matter either. Uh, But if you're going to eat it... Except
2: you may have wasted money.
1: Yeah, you may have wasted money.
2: Or been cheated out of money, I guess.
1: Right. But it's it's more a matter of, of... of integrity, I suppose, um, and not safety in the case of olive oil. Now in other products, as we've mentioned earlier with infant formula, there is there can be a safety question. The one thing, though, I would point out, even if there's not a safety problem with a particular product, the point that wrinkles me a little bit is that we are trusting the production of these products in the hands of people who cheat and if they're willing to cheat for at this level, are they also going to be willing to cheat in terms of, of safety as well? And so even though there may be an, un, the connection to safety may not be all that clear, it certainly is not healthy for the food system overall to have cheaters making money and, and passing off goods that are different than what they purport to be. Well, um, what, but I want to
2: actually dwell on that topic or a little bit more. So safety, I think, is you know, as you've talked about, maybe one of the very serious and immediate consequences that can arise with certain types of food fraud. But, you know, how does, I'd like to hear you spell out more, how does this issue relate to other concerns about the food system? You know, does it have an impact on sustainability or um, other values that we may hold dear for our healthy food system?
1: Sure. Uh, a lot of people who describe themselves as foodies, and even people who are not...
2: who um, resist that term, but maybe care. <laughs>
1: who do care about food. Uh, yep. And this includes parents and, and, and students and everyone else, who, everyone who eats at some level cares about what they're eating. And, and I think that we're, we're, we're always interested in, in knowing where that food comes from uh, if we can possibly tell, and a lot of times food is very complicated, and it's hard to tell its source. But there is something about the f- about food that resonates with all of us because we 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 depend upon food to live, we we associate food with our culture. Uh, we 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 think of food when we celebrate, um, and we like we identify with food in a lot of different ways. But there's, there's an a question of authenticity about food that I think is meaningful to everyone. And it's making sure that the food that we eat is is what it purports to be. And and so communicating that information to consumers in a way that's clear and consistent and, and correct, I think is important to everyone so we can make choices. If somebody wants to choose to eat less quality food or food that's not particularly healthy for them, then they can make that choice. But everyone needs to have a choice with accurate information, uh, and, then, and then we can make those choices. And I think that's probably what, what is, a, is a very fundamental concern about food fraud, is that it really eliminates the ability for people to make accurate choices about their food.
2: As so in the case of you, you and
1: your husband with olive oil.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> so I want to shift now to uh, the, the regulatory framework and just – try to understand a little bit more about how this is addressed in the U.S. So what kind of recourse would there be for the average consumer who may have bought uh, non-local produce at the farmer's market or eaten a fish that wasn't the fish they thought it was?
1: Sure. Well, it's very difficult, and that's the frustrating part about all of this, is that uh, at the farmer's market, it's a little easier, I suppose. Because one could complain to the organizers of the farmers market, and there has been uh, there have been farmers markets that have been cleaned up as a result of complaints. Uh, California, for example, has had a history a while ago of, of fraud occurring at its farmers market, and it, it has instilled um, rules and it's better at enforcing and tracing uh, food supply back to local producers, and it's really cleaned up the markets as a result. Um, but the other, uh, and, and so that's that's one level. But when you're buying buying a food product from a grocery store, for example, that's that's a little more. It comp- becomes a little more complicated. Um, one is not able uh, to sue, for example, the FDA. Um, one could um, write or complain to the food company, but it's you know whether or not that it's going to be successful or not is is unclear. So the remedies are not all that developed, and, and many times these food ingredients or products are coming in from different countries, so it becomes really complicated. The FDA is trying to pay more attention to these issues, and consumers can easily file a complaint with the FDA. They can write an email. They can send a letter. They can make a phone call, and sometimes that works. Um, but it does it does require some action and probably a little patience and in the, in the inability to deal with frustration uh, by consumers, but it's not and the regulatory system doesn't really provide a very clear path on how to deal with these issues. Uh, the Like I said, very little testing goes on, very little inspection. So someone actually has to complain about it. or in the worst case scenario, there has to be a safety problem. For example, recently, uh, there's been an issue with cumin, uh, and as a as a as used as an ingredient in food or a spice, and uh, there's now been a connection to um, peanut product being used, and that obviously presents an allergy issue. And this this is a current case right now. There's, it's, there's a recall out right now, and the case is it's inconclusive, but the evidence seems to be pointing in that direction. And I only mention it because that's another example of a safety problem where it actually catches the attention of the government. But otherwise, uh, it's a very difficult um, battle.
2: So the average consumer may do better taking to social media than trying to get Yes. More-
1: I agree. Social media has turned out to be a really handy device, a very handy tool for consumers to use to educate each other. You can't, every, you can't always believe everything you read on social media, so that's one of the downsides, but it certainly is a way, to, it certainly catches the attention of, of the food industry, that's for sure.
2: Is our regulatory system here uh, different than the approach in other nations, or is anyone doing a, a better job of giving consumers reliable information about what they're eating?
1: You're starting to see some countries that are doing a pretty good job, um, but usually in response to a serious problem. For example, in the U.K., uh, there was a recent scandal uh, that involved horse meat that was in place of what people had assumed were hamburgers from cows. Yes, and very this
2: notorious really cut... here for IKEA meatballs.
1: Yes, that's right. right. It really hit the media and every caught everyone's attention and the government's in response has has been quite vigorous um, and they're enforcing in the uk and in europe actually and that's that's really what it takes quite frankly it's amazing it was a a, a massive breakdown on food fraud last year in europe that involved multiple countries at very high levels of law enforcement and they confiscated uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of fake food um, and in, at, that was being stored at airports, railroad, railroads, uh, even people's homes were raided, believe it or not. And it involved olive oil and honey and a lot of the products that we've, that we've discussed in the show already. But that was a very, very big operation. And it, so it's, I only mention that because it's, a, it's, it's big, and it's comprehensive and it's global as well as local and that makes it even more difficult
2: with a lot of government resources put into that kind of operation I'm guessing. yes so um, we're just almost running out of time but I always like to ask people like yourself who have been working on food system issues for a long time about their own eating and um, I guess as it relates to food fraud or otherwise how do you how do you find that your long time work um, on issues of the food system affects your own dietary choices and habits?
1: Great question. When I eat fish and I go to a restaurant, I always ask a lot of questions. Um, I oftentimes don't get the answers I need, and then I have to make a decision. Um, And when I buy... I always buy honey from a local source because I really enjoy eating honey, and I prefer to have pollen in my honey. I grew up on a small farm, I know the taste of real honey and I enjoy eating it from its, uh, from a, a source that's close. Mm-hmm. Um, when I buy olive oil, um, I fortunately um, know a lot of folks who know much more about olive oil than I and so I, I consult, I shop around, I do a lot of talking um, and try to buy um, high quality olive oil. I try not to buy anything quite frankly that's in a typical supermarket shelf. And then I use it judiciously because high-quality oil is, is very expensive.
2: Yes, and um, I have to just tell you, one of our colleagues who we were talking about this with recently, I, I bumped into her and she said, thanks a lot for making me aware of this issue. I just spent $25 on a small <laughs> bottle of olive oil at the farmer's market. It oh. is,
1: and that's and that's unfortunate, and and there's just no way around that. That's just the reality of, of where where things are. And you know, sometimes I like to buy, I I enjoy the taste of juice, but I know full, I'm fully aware of the problems in juices at stores, and um and and sometimes we'll make an acquisition where I know it's not what it purports to be, and I go ahead and make that decision anyway, but it's um you know, it's that's that's troubling to me, and, and, and so I like to buy uh, juices even at the farmer's markets if I can. Um, but it is uh, it can be very expensive.
2: Well, we're going to have to do some um, blind taste testing of olive oil here at the office to <laughs> see how uh, refined your palate has become. <laughs> I've got
1: some on my shelf right now. In fact, I used these three bottles in my class for a test tasting, and it's interesting because the students invariably never pick the high quality olive oil, which is also interesting because it suggests that we really don't sometimes know what high quality food tastes like anymore.
2: Right. Yeah, they them and uh and my husband might my- have the same results in their blind taste testing. So, <laughs> My poor husband, thrown under the bus in this episode of Eating Matters. So we, um, that does bring us to the close of this episode. Michael, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's Michael Roberts, the Executive Director of the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy. Our show is available as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher, as well as here on Heritage Radio Network. And um, that is it for today.
1: Thank Thanks you again, for having Michael. me,
2: I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3
1: non To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.